Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome, yet again, to another Skull Rock Podcast. If you're checking us out for the first time, thank you so much. Every week, my partner Dave and I talk about all things Disney, talking pop culture with never-before-heard stories, behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, and so much more. I'm your co-host, Al John Go. I'm a musician, longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culturist. Yeah, that's a thing. And you can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard. I'm an artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, as well as follow us and like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Your questions and comments are always welcome. And boy, what a week, Al John. Wow. And we've got a great guest today. Absolutely. Oh. Disney legend Bob Gurr is going to be with us shortly. He's he's in the green room having some snacks. And, and, a, and a Gertini. <laughs> and a Gertini. There you go. Um, I have to say, Al John, things are looking up. Um, I got my first vaccine shot on Friday. Oh, that's great, man. I, I'm glad. I'm glad. And uh, yeah. the light is at the end of the tunnel. And 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 hopefully, you know, it, it required so much sacrifice by so many. And so thank you for that. Uh, if you're listening out there, you're a frontliner, you've sacrificed, your, your business got shut down. You know, uh, we're here to provide some light at the end of the tunnel, some entertainment. And for Dave, dude, I'm so happy. And, and hopefully we'll get back to some type of normalcy. I think we will. I, I definitely, we see the light at the end of the tunnel, which is fantastic. Absolutely. Well, how about little this? A yeah. little news this week, right? Absolutely. Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. You know, Dave, you talk about Disney being a global entertainment juggernaut and 1 million global paid subscribers for Disney+. Plus. Wait, 100 million. 100 million plus for Disney+. Plus. The service available in 59 countries from around the world features an impressive collection of all the content we've been talking about for the last few, uh, since the beginning of this podcast, really. And it's absolutely crazy. Bob Chapek said recently that uh, we set a target of 100 plus uh, new titles per year. And this includes animation, live action, Marvel, Star Wars, National Geographic. Our direct-to-consumer business is the company's top priority and will continue to fuel the company's growth. Uh, as everyone knows, it, it launched in uh, November of 2019. I have my launch hat uh, for Disney+. Plus. All but, right. Um, that's a huge, huge milestone. And, and a lot of that, I know, is coming from emerging markets like India. I think it's fantastic. And, and, you know, it just speaks to the fact that uh, the Walt Disney Company has an incredible uh, stable of, uh, of uh, brands and also an enormous, enormous uh, film library. Uh, yeah. Film and TV shows. I mean, it, it's just unbelievable. They they can just continue to put new material and, and and you know archive material up onto the onto the service uh, for years to come. They really need to. I'm not a big fan of people 
taking content that I'm looking forward to checking out and bookmarking and removing it. I'm hoping that Disney can continue to build upon its archive of great content. And we still have Fox and Fox Searchlight Films and so many of the other uh, imprint studios that they've they've done. I just want it to keep coming because I just signed up for Paramount Plus. I'm starting to run out of stuff to watch. I'm I'm, I'm watching crime mysteries and reenactments and and all kinds of stuff. And now I'm watching the real world reunion of 30 years from from the 90s. I'm like, Dave, I'm, I need more content. <laughs> Give me more content. I know that's that that that's really it, you know. Well, and uh, and hopefully they're going to be getting a lot more up on there. And they certainly have some great stuff. I have to say, I I've uh, watched a couple more episodes of WandaVision, yes. uh, which is just really getting so good. I mean, it's it just it? really fantastic. And uh, uh, I still I have the last two episodes uh, to watch, so don't. Don't uh, don't spoil it for me. Don't say anything. I won't. You and Ants have to really get into this show because next week we have Falcon and Winter Soldier kicking off, and you've yeah. got to be able to talk about that at least. So, well, we're yeah. gonna we're gonna jump on that as as well, you know. Okay. Um, and and I, you know, I gotta say, uh, I I thought that you know uh, some of the folks uh, in the entertainment world that have passed away over the past year, you know, it's been it's been kind of crazy right with the pandemic and everything yeah. but this was kind of a sad story the the cliff simon uh who's who was an actor in stargate sg1 passed away at 58 yeah, you know, know and right. i saw that and i was like wow what happened here and fortunately i'm well un, you know it, look i i was gonna say fortunately it wasn't COVID 19 but i mean he had uh he had a sporting accident um yeah. he was kiteboarding unbelievable well once again a great talent you know we we love uh you know all all the different um genres including sci-fi stargate sg1 was you know was great and the, uh, the movie stargate continuum also a lot of fun um also worked on nash bridges so he will be missed it's very unfortunate but um he's touched a lot of people through his work and it will continue to live on it will. It will. Well, I, I think at this point, uh, you know, I don't want to keep our uh, guest Bob Gurr waiting in the green room any longer. Uh, I think we should go right into our interview because I have no doubt it's going to be great. All right, we'll do it. Make way. The monorail is moving into the station. Here comes Bob Gurr. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, I have to tell you, we've got Disney legend Bob Gurr with us. And I mean, where do you start with a guy like this? Because he's not only a Disney legend, he also was inducted into the Theme Park Entertainment Association. He got the Thea Award for Lifetime Achievement in 1999. As I mentioned, in 2004, he's, he became a Disney legend. He's got windows on Main Street, USA at Disneyland and at the Magic Kingdom down in Florida. He's worked on unbelievable attractions for Disney, for Universal Studios. He did the pirate battles, the sinking of the pirate ship for Steve Wynn at the Treasure Island Hotel and Casino. I mean, unbelievable career, and we're honored to have you on the show today. Welcome, Bob Gurr. It's great to have you. 
I enjoy everything you just told me, but you've got about two more hours of full explanation to go here, you know. I, I mean, you've got an incredible career, and I want to jump right into it because one of the things we like to do on Skull Rock Podcast is we really like to, to find out how people started in their careers. And I understand that you're a native of Los Angeles. You went to Art Center School of Design in Pasadena, uh, and you were doing automotive design, automotive uh, uh, work, and you started working at the Ford Motor Company, and you were only there for a short, a short amount of time. How, how did that all come about? Were you working for Ford in Los Angeles? Did they have a design studio? And then how did you go to Disney? Oh, well, there's a mouthful. I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to explain the whole thing. Uh, a broad brush look back in history, you start out thinking you know what you're going to do, and you have a plan and you have an objective because your high school teacher tells you to do that. Your college instructors tell you to do that. But at some point in time, if somebody would have pulled me aside while just before I graduated from Art Center and said, Bob, everything you have planned is never going to work. Um, you're going to walk away from a lot of stuff. You're going to get calls out of the blue from people that you have no idea why they called you. And by the way, you're going to do flying saucers. You're going to do gorillas, Godzillas. You're going to work in the movies. You're going to sink ships in Las Vegas, flying saucers and all that stuff. And at age 20, I would have said, what? (laughs) (laughs) So it doesn't do any good to have a goal. What actually worked, in hindsight, it actually works, is if, if you have your blinders wide open, not here, like you're focused on what you're supposed to be doing, if you're out here and you recognize the difference between Uh, the passion of emotion, not the logic of your brain and logical thinking, what happens is that something will show up out of right field or left field, 100% unpredictable, but because it piques your emotional interest, this means you can disrupt any path that you're on and jump to something that sounds Oh, that sounds cool. I'd love to do that. And that has been 45 years of that career. That's that's what sort of set the stage for responding to all the crazy people I met, starting with Walt Disney, all the way up to everybody else. So that's the broad brush overview. Now, specifically... Oh, you you got a question. Well, I was I, I was just going to say to you, uh, I, I, in a nutshell, you're saying uh, opportunities present themselves all the time and you have to grab those opportunities uh, uh, and, and not necessarily say I'm focused on going this one direction, but be open to those opportunities that come along and say, hey, wait a second, that sounds kind of cool and zig and zag uh, off in different directions. Yes, I'm saying that because the uh, the group of students that I uh, joined at Art Center College of Design when uh, it was called Art Center School in those days, 1949. So many of the fellows who uh, learned to do, draw automobiles all went to Detroit, and they were all remained my friends. But a significant number 
did their 30 years in Detroit, retired, got their General Motors gold watch or whatever they give you, and they became alcoholics, they had health problems, and they all died young. Wow. Because their heart was set on drawing cars, and they never, never saw uh, other things that would come along in their lives. Uh, somehow, um, the fact that I was wide open to crazy stuff uh, without knowing it at the time, mm. that made all the difference in the world. So I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this from the standpoint of knowing lives that I knew well from the time we were like 20 years old, all the way up to the fact that here I am, I'm pushing 90. I have all my friends died. I have nobody to play with anymore. I'm just, and I've never been 90 before. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> well, well, I got to tell you, my mother just turned 90. And, and what she said to me was she just has to get younger friends. You know, and, and, and I know you have plenty of younger friends. So, uh, yes, that, that, it is very awkward because somebody would say, uh, well, you know, Bob, what do you do these days? And they assume all 90 year old people do what 90 year old people. And then they say, you do this, you do that. What you still riding your mountain bike? What, what on earth are you do? you're flying? You're flying turbine aircraft on a flight simulator at night. Aren't you supposed to lay on your couch? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know something, and that, that's one thing I was going to point out too to our listeners is that I've known that you got, you're an avid mountain biker. You're out uh, riding your bike all the time. You you and I should have said this in the interview. You you still have a career going. You are still doing things. You're not just resting on your laurels of what you did before. <laughs> you're you're doing things constantly and that's that's one of the great inspirations of, of this this interview i think well here's a funny thing i hadn't touched a uh, computer design in almost 20 years and a year ago i took on a uh, design job to design electric uh, mobility vehicles uh, to be used in uh, florida and the various theme parks which required that I, uh, within a month or two, I needed to use a 2D computer program. And that led to, oh, I have to learn SolidWorks, which is a big, big, heavy uh, computer design. Everybody in the world uses SolidWorks. And now anybody who knows SolidWorks, and they say, Gurr, <laughs> you're, you're kidding. You can't be using, you can't be learning SolidWorks. Oh, well, yes, yes, I am. It's a tool. I have to use it. Sure. So here I am with um, learning every every week a little bit more about SolidWorks, and that's 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 more serious uh, type of design than I ever did in my life. Uh, it's, a, it's a scooter job. I love working on it because I get a chance to actually design the vehicle in extreme detail, right down to the routing of all the wire electric wires in the thing. Well, let me ask you, when you started, when you got out of Art Center, you got hired by the Ford Motor Company. Did you go to Detroit to work? Well, the way it worked in the uh, automotive industry in, uh, let's say, early 1950s, um, representatives from each of the car companies would go to the different design schools where that taught industrial design, specializing in automobile design. The design in those days was uh, styling. It was a bad word now, but styling. In other words, you only drew the outside of the car. 
Um, and they forced the engineers to attempt to uh, make the uh, tooling to, to build the thing. Uh, today, it doesn't make sense because the entire car is cooperatively done by everybody. But in those days, we were the stylists. We drew the car. At the same time, these uh, representatives of the car companies would sneak into the schools, talk to the administrators, and pick out a couple of students before graduation. They could steal them out from under competitive companies. It was a common thing. So I had been going to school for half that period of time on a General Motors scholarship. And General Motors then called and said, send, uh, send Bob early, about a month early. So I never did technically graduate. I was hired already. Uh, all this was managed by a job placement officer at Art Center, which is the way colleges work in those days. But he was an alcoholic, and he had gotten to um, the Cadillac Hotel, the Sheraton Cadillac Hotel in Detroit, the uh, day before I got there. And uh, he was up meeting a guy from Ford Motor Company and another guy from, um, from uh, Packard Company. And between them, they made a deal that I was going to go work at the Ford Motor Company, but they didn't tell me that. <laughs> um, <laughs> they just casually said, okay, when you're uh, ready, uh, uh, you want to go see an auto factory before you go over to GM? Sure, I'd do that. And I met them at a certain corner, and it turned out the corner was the uh, hiring office at the Ford Motor Company, not the Ford <laughs> Motor uh, Rouge plant. <laughs> uh, before I knew it, I was hired into, into Ford. And then they said, oh, as a courtesy, why don't you go and uh, finish your appointment with General Motors? As a courtesy, you know, now that we've stolen you. <laughs> I mean, I'm 20 years old. I don't know what is going on. So I went over to the General Motors and a uh, very stiff uh, company, uh, you know, very proper. There was an old guy named Mr. White, and I sat there all morning until about noontime. And uh, finally, the guy said, uh, well, the person you're waiting for is not here. He's in New York. So, kid, there's no point you waiting around any longer. So I didn't feel so bad that I was rejected after I had been hired. What more can they do to a snafu of timing? Wow. Well, the, the day after that, General Motors guy from New York came back and says, where's Burr? And Mr. White said, I sent him away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, by that time, okay, and I'm in the Ford Motor Company, and I they put me in the advanced styling section, which is the coolest place of all. And within two weeks, I could see enough that I had made a giant mistake. Detroit was not the place to live. Car design was going to be nothing more than draw hood ornaments and hubcaps. You weren't ever going to design anything. So um, they transferred me to the Lincoln studio, and within about five months, George W. Walker, who had his own industrial design company, he would come around because he was a, the consultant of the Ford, and he would see who the designers were that he wanted to steal. <laughs> so I got stolen again uh, to go downtown to the George W. Walker um, design studio and I worked there on, uh, oddly enough, a new Lincoln, which was going to be done competitively with four other companies. So what a merry ground that was. But a year and a day, I decided 
I've seen enough, had enough. I'm going to go back to California. So I did. So I was a complete goof off. Um, I did get a job with Kaiser Willys through a, a consultant company. And so I drew more car pictures uh, after I came back to California than I ever drew in, in Detroit. So go so figure that one out. Ka- Kaiser Willie, that we're talking the Willys Jeep uh, yes. manufacturer. And uh, they, they made sort of off-road, not off-road, but more uti- uh, utility well, they, vehicles. No, they, uh, they made a small car. You know, it was called, the brand was Willys. Willys, Willys yeah. Been around about 40 years. Mm-hmm. And Kaiser was, was a new company, but there was a company... In Detroit, Miller and Griesinger, which was independent designers. And so I was sort of a subcontractor to them through my former teacher at Art Center. This gets very complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In any event, I would come to an office that I borrowed from a friend about 10 in the morning, and I'd draw pictures, and I'd mail them out at about 2 o'clock and then go to the beach. (laughs) Uh, And I did this for much of... uh, in 1953, the fall of 53. And Miller and Griesinger thought I worked all day long, eight hours. No, I draw fast. <laughs> <laughs> so here it was. It was a period of time. I had no goal. Now I was used to goofing off. Mm-hmm. No goal. And um, so I had my own company, R.H. Uh, Gurr Industrial Design. I bought a rubber stamp and a J.C. Penney invoice pad, and, I, and I'm in business. <laughs> and one of my early clients, after a phone call, was the Walt Disney Company. I got a phone call, and to go out there and meet a Mr. Irvine, and I knew that there was some kind of a amusement park project going on and I knew at the same time because I was a friend of Ub Iwerks who helped Paul start the company that um, there was a little car on the back lot that had a chassis and no body so by the time I got out to the studio I was oh I think they need a body on a car oh I can do that so I started just I'll bring some drawings out on Saturday and then one thing led to another and there I am 27 years at Disney and then Disney fired me and so I created the Gur Design Incorporated company and ran that for 20 years. All right. So, there so we are. there's the, the whole story. The, okay, wait, wait a second. I'm gonna I'm gonna back us up because I, I want to know what was what was that car that you were designing when you first got to the Disney Studios? What what was that? Uh, oh, the, it needed it needed a body. Yeah, that was the Autopia Mark One. Okay, so that was the first Autopia. Yes, uh, and the reason for that was, oh. Uh, Walt was doing this crazy thing in a an amusement park. Uh, oh my gosh! I have whoa. Okay. Uh, there's a great big uh, bobcat in my backyard. He's, wow. he's about he's about that big. He's orange, good good looking colors. He comes by here all the time. He's looking for birds in my yard. Okay. Yeah. Well. For for our listeners, uh, uh, Bob, because I've been to your house. Um, uh, uh, you you live uh, uh, sort of on the on the fringes of Los Angeles uh, in the mountains. Yes, that's right. Uh, so so a lot of natural area. So uh, uh, along with that comes a lot of natural wildlife. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I have raccoons, uh, skunks, uh, possums, all kinds of birds out here, yeah, and the. And the, yeah, and the cat's been he's been here several years. It's a very good looking cat. Well, um, there's a kinship between you and the bobcat because you're both named Bob. 
<laughs> yeah, well, okay, yeah. <laughs> Bob, Bob's got to stick together. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, Walt had the uh, opportunity to buy amusement rides that already exist, but he was intent on having amusement rides uh, his way, in other words, his designs. Mm-hmm. There was a guy trying to sell him uh, uh, an Utopia-type car. In other words, it's called a bump car. But it was a very, very ugly-looking car. And they had that on the back lot, already painted up um, uh, with the word Disneyland on it. And um, uh, one of the, a very famous movie actor and his uh, sons were always driving it on the back lot. Um, but he had a local like a little lawnmower shop guy build a little chassis of a car, not very well figured out, but the guy didn't know how to build a body. So uh, they called around and tried to find somebody who does that work. And I, I did that work. They found me and they called me and I went out there and I could see what they needed. And uh, it turned out the minute uh, I was assigned to Roger Brogy senior who managed the machine shop yeah. at the studio. And he said, um, called me one morning and after about two weeks called me and said, do you draft? Yes. Get your tools and get here now. Like seven in the morning. I don't get up that early. <laughs> walked in, walked in there and, uh, he said, uh, you got to design this production version of this car because the guy that built it is mad and he, because you're going to do the body and he can't, he was not going to help Disney anymore. So now I'm handed engineering. Oh, not planned for that. But that, that's how it, the whole thing got started because Walt wanted his own car. Uh, now I had to figure out how to do his own car instead sure. of buy a store-bought car. So that's how it started. And, and when when you were working on those early attractions for Disneyland, uh, uh, I, I'd like to ask you a little bit about what Walt Disney was like, because he, you know, from my understanding, he wandered around the studio lot. He liked to pop in on people. He wasn't a real formal meeting kind of guy. Is that your impression? And do, do you that, have any? That's completely correct. Yeah, <clears throat> It's hard to understand uh, explaining, let's say now, you know, 60 years you know, 50, 60 years later, because uh, so many people are used to corporations that are filled with professionally licensed MBAs. Uh, you know, MBAs are a dime a dozen. They, they come by the thousands. They're, they manage stuff without knowing anything about it. Where Walt managed his company by knowing everything about it. And he knew that because he walked around all the time. Um, he had a, um, I noticed it right off the bat when I first started working with him. Um, he's, he's, he's direct and he's, uh, mostly uh, friendly. He's kind of grouchy, uh, a little bit, but, uh, mostly friendly. And he, uh, it dawned on me over the first couple of years, you know, he doesn't give orders. He engages you in a conversation. Um, some of it's ongoing and some of it is, you know, new projects that are going to show up. And the way you would approach a, a new project, he'd, uh, he'd walk around and talk to people, you know, whether it's a machine shop or a movie set way out in the back or a soundstage or animators. And then, of course, we'd all talk to one another. And then they'd say, you know, Walt was in here asking me about this thing. And the other guy says, yeah, he, he asked me yesterday about that thing. 
So in other words, Walt was building a, uh, a little bit of a hint of things he's thinking about, and it scatters around amongst the, uh, the back lot so that uh, people are kind of aware of um, something, something's kind of coming. And then one day it would get slightly more officialized, but not, not with a general announcement, not, no big grandstand press release type of thing. Um, but he, he talked to you uh, in a manner like this. He'd come in and he'd say, uh, Bobby, we're thinking of uh, doing this. And he'd describe a little bit about it. And then he'd suddenly say, do you think that would work? No, he poses the question. He's not telling you, I want you to start this or do this, or we're starting this official project and we're budgeting it and we're manloading it and, and staffing it and all that. And we will issue orders to everybody. No, no, no. He never did any of that. None of that stuff. But you can see what he's doing. He's building an interest and what he wants to do by getting you to think about it and think about it from the contribution side. Stop and think. When somebody like a Walt did and he says, Bobby, what do you think? You think that would work? And he did it to everybody. That is so, so different than the way companies are managed today. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's still people I ran across, you know, 20 years ago that uh, did the same thing exactly as Walt. Uh, Steven Spielberg was the same way. Steve went in Las Vegas exactly the same way. Did ask a question. They get you interested in something. Um, That's the easiest way to describe Walt. Uh, The other part of it was, obviously, the things he's doing are crazy. And what happens when they don't work? You've wasted the time and you wasted the money. You can probably get the money. He'll send Roy down to the Bank of America and get more money. But you can't get your time back. So if it was your idea that didn't work, you feel bad, you know, that, oh, my gosh, my idea didn't work. Um, A normal company would uh, put you on the carpet and threaten you if you do something like that again, you're out, or they just fire you on the spot anyway. So you're threatened. Walt never wanted to really threaten people because they're creative. They have ideas. He needs the ideas from, from people. So the fact that, we had to look at something that didn't work and Walt's there and we're looking at the wreckage, so to speak, uh, figuratively. Uh, and he says, well, fellas, uh, we sure found out what doesn't work. So why don't we get going and uh, let's figure out how to get this thing to work. Well, the effect on you would be, whew, he didn't kill me right away. Um, and he's asking me for more. Mm. You see that difference? Between well, it, you're, you're building your, your failures aren't failures. Failures are learning opportunities. Oh yeah. Uh, and so you may try something and it doesn't work, but what do you learn from that? That allows you to take it to the next level and, and, and add some new features or do something different that does make it work. Oh yeah. Right? Because, yeah. Because what happens over, over the decades you build quite a dossier in your memory of things that sound cool but don't work. Mm-hmm. This means over time, it's not that you're you know, not that you're you know you're tightening yourself down too much, but you are you are building a dossier of, of practical wisdom in your mind that when you talk to younger designers with a cool new idea, 
And when you see the same idea proposed, you can say, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Let me tell you about the last time we tried that one. <laughs> this way, this gives you uh, the ability to know how to pick and choose what's what's good or what not, not work. And at the same time, guide and mentor uh, the new kids coming into the company. Um, it, it's, it's the essence of, as a way Walt would let's say, Bobby, we're just going to do it right. Well, I mean, it sounds to me also that uh, you might have a cool idea, but the technology wasn't there yet. And you have to invent the technology to make that cool idea work. Is that something that you uh, you, you experienced while you were creating some of these attractions? Yes, in, in two different ways. Um, some of the technology we would create, but in other cases, we have to wait for that technology to finally arrive. Very simple case. The first flying saucer ride at Disneyland was a, was a, was a crazy wild thing. I, that was a great fun to ride on. Extremely difficult to get it to function every day correctly because it needed a computer to control great big uh, air damper doors and a big a plenum chamber underneath the whole thing to uh, modulate the air pressure with all the little funny changes going on. The machine would not uh, respond quick enough because the computer... Computers of that category had never been invented yet. So we wound up, we were 20 years too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, had had we waited 20 years or the computer would have been 20 years ahead. But the other part of it is Walt could see tools he needs and had the courage to ask some of his guys to figure it out. The multiplane camera is the, is the big, big one. Sure. That multiplane was back in the uh, 30s. Walt saw that. You want to do this uh, stack up, you know, to get you, the way animation moves. I mean, just ter- a terrific idea. But his, his own guys figured that whole thing out, designed it, got it, uh, uh, produced uh, several of them, got it to work, and it was a super machine. Uh, you know, Pinocchio was the first one they really used it on. Yeah. And thereafter, it was a big. It, 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 it was used for 50 years. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. an absolute marvel. Um, as we got into uh, physical animation, remember with the multiplane camera, uh, animation had been extremely well figured out. Now he's doing a physical park. We've got physical um, robotic animals, let's say, and um, animations that are that are physical, mechanical, electrical, hydraulic stuff. But the the computer systems or the programming systems uh, were, were not really ready yet. So we, we had to figure out our own stuff to try to get some simple stuff to work. So it wasn't hopelessly corny, mm. uh, you know, and it slowly got a little bit better. And then finally, by the time um, we got into the late 60s, we uh, created our own system called DAX, or Digital Animation Control System. And we had a bunch of real brainy guys over in the electronics department. And Disney invented a whole brand new, complicated, expensive system that uh, that went into um, complete service in 1971 at Walt Disney World. Mm. Well, guess what? Within a couple of years, uh, industry was now doing similar type of control equipment that was very available. And by the time we got into the 1980s, you could now go down to uh, 
literally the corner store and there was a guy selling electronic control boxes for show programming. Um, and it didn't cost very much. So here was the funny thing. We jumped way ahead, spent millions inventing this great big DAC system that was highly proprietary. Uh, and had we waited <laughs> another 15 years or so, we could have bought store-bought stuff. Now, of course, the industry is so advanced that um, the animation control systems for show control, everything, there's a number of companies making it, and it's all bulletproof, absolutely super, super, super stuff. I know if today if Walt, had, Walt was around and he'd walk in to see all the tools you could buy mm. and how beautiful I mean, you can do any tell any kind of story you want, Walt would just say, ah, oh, I missed it. I was too soon. I missed the whole thing. Yeah, but so, was he was he really too soon though? Because it seems to me that the stuff you guys created uh, showed the world that this stuff could be done, and other people were inspired to then go off and build systems. Oh, absolutely. Uh, right? Absolutely, yes. Because they saw what you guys had done. So, I, I mean, I, I kind of view that as uh, you you laid the cornerstone. Uh, for some of these technologies? Oh, very much so. For example, um, by 1963, uh, late 63, we had enough animation figured out that we could do the um, New York World's Fair shows. Ford Motor Company uh, animation was very rudimentary. They're just cavemen. Uh, the Carousel of Progress was uh, pretty serious. We, this was right at the leading edge of uh, animation control uh, and believable animation because it had been developed in 61, two and three. And then uh, in October of 63, Walt throws me the job of Abraham Lincoln because they'd been working on one for a year and it didn't work, but we did have the electronics for it. So I had to take, uh, take out 180 days, no 90 days to uh, design the mechanical part of the Abraham Lincoln, not the hands, not the head, but uh, the body, which is not working. And then combine that with the show controls that they already had. And that meant that when the New York World's Fair opened, we had about four different generations over time, all opening on the same day with the most advanced one being Abraham Lincoln. And uh, the people there at the time, they. Uh, they were so startled, they could not believe uh, a robot could be so lifelike representing the president of the United States. I mean, what Walt wanted to do was just, it was, it was a giant scary reach, and he was very disappointed that it would, by, by October 63, it was not, not working. But uh, I jumped in on the thing, and uh, we, we got that, got the design going, the shop built that thing as fast as they could build it. We didn't even finish assembly drawing. We just stuck it together. Um, and uh, two weeks after the fair opened, people were looking at this thing and were just stunned. Well, guess what happened? All the other companies in this line of work saw that, oh, it can be done. And they, in their own way, started developing their own systems. And then eventually, you had more store-bought stuff moved along. And now today, the transition uh, started maybe a dozen years ago. 
Disney had been the leader in developing all that, and then it became quite expensive. So the Garner Holt uh, Productions Company um, uh, was given the job of, well, you, you start doing all the animation, and they Disney sold basically their animation operation to Garner Holt for a dollar mm. if they would promise to keep keep building for them. So here you here you have a strange thing. You had all of the mom and pop people inspired by Walt back in the uh, 60s, 70s. And uh, now you have one giant company literally doing the lion's share of everything for everybody all over the world. And that's the biggest factory I've ever seen out in uh, Southern Redlands, California. Yeah. Um, and it started, the guy started in his garage at 12 years old, self-taught. <laughs> wow. But like Walt, he did it right, and he stayed stayed on top of everything to get it right. And look, look, look where it got. He's up. He's the top of the pile and does the majority of uh, Disney work. Uh, Disney does keep a few things uh, that are very, very secret to themselves, of course, yeah. for animation. Sure. Let me ask you, um, uh, going back to uh, Disneyland in those early years, uh, when you were working on some of those attractions for uh, for the New York World's Fair, um, a lot of that technology was then transported or transferred into Disneyland itself. Um, I, I know that uh, you know you and I had talked a little bit about the. Um, uh, Carousel of Progress, uh, when I interviewed you about Claude Coates, uh, and also uh, the, um, the Ford Magic Skyway ride system itself was a precursor to uh, the Omnimover that went into um, uh, the um, adventure, uh, adventure Through Inner Space. Is that correct? No. No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, a lot of people think that any moving vehicles in a ride attraction are sort of all the same generation, mm -hmm. uh, and they're not. The uh, uh, idea of the Omnimover did not uh, did not show up until after the fair uh, had been running for quite some time. The um, Actually, the Ford Motor Company, Magic Skyway, its precursor was the Matterhorn. Okay. All right. You remember when you ride the Matterhorn at Disneyland, if you're watching out in front of the car, you see the little wheels moving in the uh, on the hills and down the bottom of the hill sometimes? Yeah. Uh, that's called a booster brake system. It was a brilliant invention by um, Aero Development to make sure that a slow car would be urged over a hill if it was too slow, and if it was going too fast, it would be slowed down a bit. And that's because um, that was Arrow's first roller coaster. It was my first roller coaster to design the track. Remember, I'm handed a job that's full of math, and I got it, I got an F in geometry one in high school, and I never proceeded further. <laughs> and I had to learn uh, trigonometry in about 15 minutes to do the, to do the Matterhorn track. Um, due to a bunch of technicalities of physics, uh, a roller coaster track has to be done right or it won't work. Mm. But you don't know it's right until you build it. <laughs> it's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> so uh, Arrow came up with this um, little insurance policy wheels. And then, of course, when the Ford Motor Company um, 
job came along. Um, uh, Walt and Walt Disney and Henry Ford were talking together. And then when Ford asked um, Walt, well, how are you going to move the vehicles? And um, Walt said, oh, well, we're going to do it like the Matterhorn. We're going to have wheels embedded in the track, and it'll propel the cars. And um, one of the Ford engineers who was in charge of assembly line design thought the idea stunk and uh, objected. And then uh, we learned later, Henry Ford reached over under the table and kicked the man in the shin so hard the man agreed immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and it was and it was Walt's just off the cuff um, answer. Yeah. Well, the minute Walt got back to the uh, studio and he assigned me to the job, and he says, uh, he says, "Oh yeah, um, you're going to move the cars with the wheels." Goodbye. <laughs> so, so it was like. You had something specified, which normally he wouldn't have done, but that was that was what we had to do. But now, in the case of the Omnimover, that was a thought that came up much later, and okay. not related at all to um, Ford Major Skyway or uh, or Matterhorn. Completely separate. What, so it wasn't even inspired by it, uh, or, or any no, any of the attractions from from the World's Fair. Yeah. See, the problem is over time, uh, as historians write and rewrite the history of Disney's attractions, they don't thoroughly research on their own. They read the previous book by the previous offers, which were based on the previous previous yeah. uh, that were not checked out. So over time, we have tremendous inaccuracies in the latest books and blogs now today in the world. And I have to spend my time correcting everybody, but it's, it's, it's moot, it's too late. It's already in print. So um, a question like this, I get a chance to uh, correct the misinformation, but, uh, sure. you know, but it's, it's already printed. It already exists. So, so that's the way it is. But the, uh, um, like the uh, adventure through inner space uh, attraction, uh, that system was improved upon then for the haunted mansion, or was it just a, we're using that system right away over at the haunted mansion? No, as it turned out, the Haunted Mansion, uh, if, if you got your history correct, about 10 years of effort with an idea of a walk-through Haunted Mansion. Yeah. Haunted Mansion had a very long uh, developmental period of ideas back and forth, which are basically the Haunted Mansion should be ugly and haunted, or the Haunted Mansion should be light and beautiful and funny. It took a long time to come up with the idea of it should be happy scary, yeah. Uh, in which the attraction gags that are in the Haunted Mansion are so clever, they kind of terrify, terrify you, but not too much. Mm. It's, it's a beautiful balance. So it was good that it took a long time to do that. But in the meantime, it, it was always going to be the walkthrough. And then the Haunted Mansion people caught on to what I was doing for uh, voyage uh, for the Voyage to Inner Space. Uh, I'd come up with this uh, type of vehicle, which I dubbed Omnimover, of course. And then suddenly they said, oh, my God, that'll solve our problem. So as we're just starting to develop the test track for the um, for the uh, Voyager Inner Space, they completely switched gears. And they'd already built the house. <laughs> That's the funny part. So they were retrofitting it. Oh, yeah. They had to dig up some concrete and redo a few things. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, um, 
everybody remembers the Omnimover from the Haunted Mansion, totally forgetting that it was uh, two years ahead. It was for the Voyage Lunar Space. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and then, of course, that same basic machine, is we've used it in all the Disney parks. The latest one, of course, is like the Little Mermaid uh, ride. Yeah. That's all basically uh, the Omnimover went through a, a lot of little improvements over the years, but it's the same machine, same basic. Yeah. Same, same basic uh, design. Yeah, well, the idea was it, um, it had all the attributes uh, that I could see at the time. How do we have the highest possible capacity per hour, depending on the vehicle that's on it? What is the uh, most reliable way you could uh, have a propulsion system and, and avoid an uh, anti-collision control system? Mm. Well, an endless chain, number one, that, you're, you're cheating. You know, it's, those work. I mean, it's really simple. Uh, the second thing is, could you do a body that you could move the body on the chassis so the art directors could point a uh, guess into the, the scenes in a much, much better way. So it's only two or three little principles, but they were all rolled up in the idea of the haunted, uh, the um, Omnimover configuration. So over the years, um, it's a super reliable machine. It's, it's got an awful lot of parts. One day I was down in the, uh, underneath the haunted mansion, looking at the uh, attraction from underneath with some of the mechanics and it, as I look at it, I think, ah, oh, man, I got to apologize to you guys. I have never seen a thing with so many wheels in my life, but there was no <laughs> other no other way to do it. I got it as simple as you could get it to do what it needed to do. And so I apologize. And the guy said, Bob, don't worry about it. They all move all day long together. <laughs> I said, well, okay, all right. Um, it, just, it just didn't look right when you see it. But it works. That's but let, let me ask you, what was the challenge then for the submarine voyage? Because now you're dealing with uh, moving guests through an attraction that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, almost a mile of track, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> and you're uh, underwater now uh, where everything has to be underwater. Uh, what was the challenge for that? Um, well, look. Uh, the submarine ride started in uh, right after we built the uh, viewliner uh, the viewliner track in mm -hmm. uh, 1957. Um, Roger Brogy and Truman Woodworth, who was the manager at Disneyland at that time, the three of us were walking along the uh, railroad track on the uh, west side of the of the lagoon where the Phantom boats uh, started a com complete failure. So, but we had a body of water. And then Woody looks looks at us and says, uh, "You know, Walt's got just about everything in this park by now, except he doesn't have a submarine. <laughs> He's just joshing." <laughs> oh boy! Within the week, uh, Rogers says, "Robert, we've got to start thinking about a submarine." <laughs> <laughs> and then, since at the same time, the uh, director of construction was an admiral, Admiral Joe Fowler. Mm -hmm. Uh, minute you say submarine and you say water, all of a sudden Joe jumps in on it and says, um, all right, we're going to have uh, submarines and uh, we're going to look at an underwater cable drive because somebody's told us that's the way to do it. They do it in Germany that way. 
So Roger and I go up to San Francisco and we talked to the chief engineer of the San Francisco cable car uh, railroad. We spent the entire day and the guy said, fellas, I'm going to show you everything why you never want to ever use a cable drive. <laughs> <laughs> so we come back and it's um, okay. The Admiral wants the cable drive, but we're not going to do it because we talked to the guy who does it. And um Okay, so we're going to float a boat. Okay, so we got a float a boat. Okay, we're going to just guide it with wheels. Okay, we got a guided wheel float a boat. Okay, uh, put a propeller on it, you know, and put, uh, what do you want, batteries in the back, motor, whatever you want. So all that's very ordinary. That's all very straightforward stuff. Then we did a test tank to see what the show would look like looking out of the portholes. In the meantime, I built a... Um, a full size um, of a half section of the sub in order to verify how many people can I get in the tiniest boat, uh, which turned out to be a 19 inch uh, pitch between the portholes. And then I said, well, you know, it's a submarine, it has to submerge a bit. So I did the calculations for uh, um, sinking it. Uh, no mystery there, it's not really a challenge, it's just stuff we got to figure out. Mm -hmm. And then some unnamed person said, why don't you let the water bubbles come up in front of the porthole? People will think you're sinking. <laughs> okay, fine. That was beautiful because I didn't have to worry about designing a, a submarine. I had to go up and down. Uh, so there really was no challenge. The whole thing just sort of, all these steps just sort of plopped it into, into place. So the only thing that was different would be it had to float pretty low in the water, which meant water 63 pounds a cubic foot. Do you know how much weight that boat has to be? So we figured structurally, oh, that's easy. I'll start with a three-inch three-inch thick steel slab for the floor. Wow. We will weld the biggest ribs and the fattest skin we want to weld on it uh, so we don't have to buy as much lead to put in it. To, to run it sure. at the lower level. Yeah. And that's all there was to the sub. It was pretty straightforward. Now, while that was in development, uh, was, was, uh, was that something that Walt was constantly coming by and checking and, you know, uh, uh, seeing what the, what, what experimentation you guys were doing? Oh, all the time. Yeah. You got to remember for the 59, uh, Disneyland summer project, we had uh, four or five big jobs all going at once. So what right. was it? What was on top of everything every day? Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, stop and think. He's got the guts to say, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do, oh, a submarine. Oh, oh, we'll put a motorboat in there too. Oh, well, then we'll um, we'll build a Matterhorn. Okay, that's pretty good. Okay, let's throw a monorail on the top of it. Oh, and let's redesign all the Utopias. Oh, let's come up with a new Utopia car. All at once and I worked yeah. on all of them in parallel the whole time. So Walt would have that would have been his can, super candy store period of period of his life. Yeah, everywhere he went in that back lot was just oh fantastic. Some, something was going on. Let, let oh, me yeah, yeah let, let me ask you this. Um, uh, you know there there's a story uh, about the day before uh, Disneyland opening uh, that Walt was actually in one of the venues with a paintbrush painting 
and and so my question to you is, uh, for all your time at Disney and knowing Walt, uh, was he really that hands-on? Would he jump in and tinker with things uh, if he had the opportunity? I've never heard a uh, paintbrush in his hand uh, at the night before Disney. That uh, that's a that's a new rumor. I've never heard okay. that. Okay. Yeah. No. Um, no. The night before, he was so consumed with the last minute details all over that park and the fact that it was actually going to open the next day. And so he and his family were at their golden horseshoe and threw a party. And Diane told me later, she says, you know, that's the, that's the first time she saw daddy relax and was really, really happy, but he was just totally exhausted. So that is not the set and setting where he's out there with a with a paintbrush. So wherever that story came from is 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 wrong, unless okay. somebody's got a photograph of him doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but but well, he was a hands on guy. Uh, I take it though. Uh, well, you got to remember, um, he, he got did... interested in railroads. Yeah, you know, yeah. Back, you know, quite quite early on when he was a little kid. And then, of course, Ward Kimball, one of the nine old men animators, had his own railroad in his backyard. Walt used to love to go over there and play play choo-choo with Ward uh, with, with the locomotive stuff. Um, so, yeah, all those all those interests, are, you know, they just totally blended together. Yeah. And uh, even to the point when we wanted to have the little lily bell, um, He'd stay after work and go down to the shop and have Roger Brogy show him how to do metal work, you know, sheet metal work, a little bit of welding, a little bit of machining, because uh, Walt could catch on to anything really, really quick. You show him something once, he's got it. Mm. So a lot of people don't realize that uh, when they see the little lily bell up in the family museum in San Francisco, uh, some of those metal parts on the locomotive, Walt, Walt made those with his own hands. He built most of the cars because of wood. Yeah. Um, so you got to remember, it was totally logical because his mother was a drafter. She she drew homes. She could mm-hmm. she could design a house. And you remember, his, his father was uh, in the woodworking business. He could build anything. Mm-hmm. So it's logical that Walt, one of their kids, uh, was understood that you know the physical creating stuff with your own hands. Mm-hmm. It's the same way when he um, he and uh, Roy came to California in 1923. It didn't take very long. They wanted to have a house, so they figured, you know, anybody else you're busy creating an animation company. Why don't you just buy a house? No, Walt and Roy decided they were going to buy a kit home. Yeah. It comes with 12,000 parts, about a 50-page manual. They bought the lots, poured the foundation, and those two guys, with a lot of help from their friends, they built two homes, which are still standing. They're in beautiful uh, condition today. Uh, on, on Lyric Avenue, right? Lyric, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Go, go figure out. Um, a lot of people don't don't realize that about Walt, but, yeah. I mean, that's that's another thing when you learn that. The guy's busy building a company. Why in the world are we build a house from a kit when he could buy one. <laughs> Maybe it's, simply be, simply because he wanted to. Yeah. It's it just, it's just Walt. It's just, yeah. it's just the way he liked stuff. Do you feel he was fairly down to earth? Very, very, very down to earth. Uh, it's, it's a curious thing. He was very down to earth on the, the daily 
the daily work with everybody all the time. That was a very, a very consistent. But at the same time, uh, dealing with uh, heads of state, dealing with uh, corporate uh, CEOs, uh, he was very comfortable. He uh, he he under, he understood uh, how you um, how you discuss uh, big big ideas. But at the same time, he could uh, talk with his janitor and our, our, the guys doing the landscaping and ask him questions in the same tone of voice. There was no uh, there was no difference. Yeah. Um, Roy Disney, Roy E. Disney, Roy O's son was very much like that as well. He could talk yeah. to pretty much he treated everybody uh, in a similar fashion, regardless yeah. of what they did, yeah, whether was, it was a security host or, or, or the yeah. president of the United States. Yeah, it was it was very consistent. Um, part of it I, I kind of gathered from some of the things he said over time was and I noticed this personally, we. Uh, he took us on the company plane in January of 66 to go out and try to sell Epcot to companies like Westinghouse and General Electric. Um, he would deliberately make himself look a little bit unsheveled uh, instead of, you know, neat and trim like a Hollywood studio mogul. Um, little things like get your tie slightly askew. Um if uh, you're outside and it's the winter time, you put your coat on, you got a little hat, he would plop the hat like a pork pie hat. He'd plop it and never rearrange it. It landed where it landed, and that was where it's going to be for a while. Um, and it was sort of a thing where in talking to people, and I, I noticed this several times, um, as two people are talking who haven't don't know each other very well and they're very powerful, once you get a face a little bit too close, you get you're in somebody's space too close. There's a, you want to be back like three feet. You go down to two feet. Uh, now you're in a cocktail lounge. It's crowded, and we're trying to sell Epcot, and you're inches away from uh, the chief executive officer of uh, Westinghouse, Don Burnham, or uh, all having a scotch mist and stuff, you know, before having a dinner, and I noticed. Don's lower lip started to quiver, <laughs> you know, when you get nervous around somebody. Um, Walt was very aware of the effect he would have on people because um, he was very aware. He knew who he was, mm. um, and he recognized that um, this effect on people, uh, particularly, um, you know, little kids would be awestruck, uh, Chairman of the board would be awestruck. And because the way his demeanor with new employees on the Disney lot, we have to talk. We can't, we can't have a formal standoffish, you know, a different level. Like I am Walt, you are just a worker. Walt did everything he could to get everybody exactly on that same level. And it was not a case of him coming down at all. It's a case of him having a manner that did not scare you, did not intimidate you, so that you could talk in great detail at any time in any kind of a location, just you and Walt, like two people. Um, he, made people he made people feel comfortable. 
Yeah, they got to make them feel comfortable. Uh, but I remember he told me one time about it. He says, he says we have to talk. Mm. Um, and he made a big effort in that. Uh, uh, something everybody at the at the studio always knew forever. But particularly once we started into the Disneyland idea where everybody had a nameplate in a little oval thing. But, you know, you never had a title on your badge. It mm-hmm. was only your first name. Right. And Walt was extremely insistent uh, uh, that way because uh, the story was always repeated over and over and over. You're a new employee. You're going down that hall in the animation building. Nobody around. And guy coming the other way is Walt. What do you do? There's only two things you can do. You can either walk by him and say nothing, or you can say hello. And of course, you know you're going to say hello, Mr. Disney. And he'd whirl around and, and stop you and say, uh, What's your name? And then you'd tell him, and he says, I'm Walt. Don't ever forget that. <laughs> or if you didn't say a word, he'd whirl around and says, What's the matter? Aren't we talking? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's awesome. But he he would send a signal immediately yeah. to a new face, um, so that you would understand when everybody else says, "Ooh, no, we don't know." You don't call him Mister Disney. We don't you we don't use titles in this place. Um, we don't really have organizational charts. We just we're just us. We're just here. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, a, a totally different time, that's for sure. Um, um, do you have, and I, I often don't like to answer this question uh, about having a favorite, but, but there has to be one particular attraction or one particular project you worked on over the years that kind of rises to the top as being like, wow, I just really enjoyed that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know. Do you have one of those? I sure do. You'll never guess. I won't. You tell me. <laughs> Main Street Fire Engine. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. That's cool. All right. Here, here we go. Uh, a couple of years before I went to Disney, I knew Ward Kimball mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, we're all car guys. And I was writing books for a friend of his, a name, guy named Dan Pulse. And Dan lived not far from uh, Ward. So we go over to Ward's house. And one day, Ward asked me to come down and drive his 1916 American La France fire engine in a parade in Temple City. Well, when you're about 19 years old, you drive somebody's big historic fire engine, you want one forever the rest of your life, and you're never going to be able to get one. But one day, Walt was in my office, and we had that little spare moment, and I said, Walt, you know, we don't have a fire engine on Main Street. No, Bobby, we don't. Uh, about 10 minutes later, the accounting department phones up and says, uh, Bob Walt was here. Uh, write these numbers down. This is the uh, authorization project for the new fire engine project. And I thought, "Woo! I'm going to get a fire engine. <laughs> um, so we built it. It was based upon the yellow car and the red car. Uh, cute little thing. And um, to get it down to Disneyland, I got a moving permit uh, to drive it there from Burbank where we built it down to uh, Disneyland. So I drove it down the freeway, believe it or not, almost all the way. Got it down there and um, it had two side streets. Delivered it on, uh, I think it was, um, might have been May 8th of 1958, something like that. Um, And if you look at a lot of photographs of uh, Disneyland in that era, 
when you see important people, what, what car are they riding in and who's driving? <laughs> it turned out Walt wanted a fire engine too. <laughs> if war they had one, it was one of those sudden, oh, yes. Now, uh, now that, that fire engine, was, was that full size or was it scaled down um, uh, like the Carnation uh, delivery truck was? No, it was it was scaled down to fit the basic kind of delicate size of Disneyland. Where remember this, Disneyland is done by set decorators, not architects. Yeah, there's a little foreshortening that you do. That's why I had to make the omnibus a, a big tricks to get it down so it's not overpowering. Did the same thing with the cars, and I did the same thing with a fire engine. In fact. Driving the fire engine down there and going on a side street, I came around a corner and there's a little kid standing there. And as I went around the corner, the kid looks at me and he goes, Mister, by the time you get there, it will burn down. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize it until maybe 20, 15 years ago. And then I was at, down in Long Beach and there was a nice parade. And in the distance, I could see a little tiny fire engine coming. And I didn't know they took the fire engine out uh, out of Disneyland and they use it for parades. That was new to me. And I saw this thing coming and the closer it got and I looked and I says, oh my God, that's mine. And then I thought, it really is tiny. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very small, small scale. Yeah. Now the the final part of the story was why it's why this is important. What was the last photograph ever made? of Walt in his Disneyland before he passed away. And he's, he's sitting in the fire engine with, with his friend, Mickey. Yes. The famous photo. That, yes. That was a very poignant photo. The circumstance of how that was the last, hmm. the last frame on a, on a, on a roll in a camera. Wow. Last second. They, he had one more frame. So I asked Walt to, can I get one more picture? They were doing a photo shot. Yeah. Walt back up there, and Walt had that look for a, a second with the mouse. Mm -hmm. he, and the photographer got it, and we've got it forever. Yeah. And that was in my fire engine. Love it. That's that's awesome. So, um, uh, you know, you had this f spectacular career at Disney, but then you 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 said earlier when we first started talking, you got fired. What what were the circumstances behind that? Uh, well, it was kind of a complicated story. There was a lot of things that weren't designed well, weren't working well. A lot of cost overruns, building um, uh, building Epcot. And I was assigned to the uh, Tokyo Disneyland project uh, because uh, two years before, before I was fired, I was told that I'm no longer allowed to engineer anything because I'm not a licensed engineer. Mm. Uh, that was kind of a, um, a hard bullet to bite, but there was no choice. It was a case of... Uh, well, Bob, you um, you can't be uh, have a grandfather clause as a as a engineer because you you have no education and you have uh, no no license no no state license. Uh, but we will have you uh, as a manager of documentation transfer for ride and show uh, equipment to Tokyo. Yeah, 
fancy sounding title, but, but I couldn't I couldn't design anything anymore. <laughs> so that was you know kind of you know kind of hard. So the day they fired me was oh it was hallelujah I'm out of here and I'll go form my own company which I did. Um, which was Ger Design Incorporated. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. they get they give you uh, fourteen days. On day thirteen, I'd completed all the paperwork by the state of California. I'm the president of a full California Category twelve forty four stock corporation, and I hired myself because technically, the way uh, John Zovich, chief engineer of the company, fired me, he said uh, you're to immediately seek a career in another company, and I thought. A career in another company. I'll create one and I'll hire myself, <laughs> which I did. <laughs> and and on, on day thirteen, I had my letters of resignation to four or five executives, and it was um, early afternoon, and every one of them were gone. One of them, particularly, had a race car, and it was a race car weekend up in Laguna Seca. Laguna Seca, so he. He played hooky, and I don't know why the other ones weren't in the office. Well, I had nobody to quit to. Hmm. But Monday morning, the, uh, the bomb went off, and uh, but it was too late. I had clients uh, lining up on Monday morning. Man, that, yeah. that's awesome. And yeah. and then you went on to form uh, the Sequoia. You were co-founder of Sequoia Creative. Uh, and, and I, I'm really, I, I have to tell you, I, I'm personally excited to ask this next question because I've been a huge fan of Steve Wynn, uh, the Las Vegas casino magnet for, for decades. I mean, I've watched the guy's career from afar and I love his properties. So what was it like to a work with him and to do the pirate battle and the sinking of the pirate ship at treasure Island in Las Vegas? Vegas. Well, I met him a couple of years before. Um, you got to remember, he had retinitis uh, pigmentosa. In yeah. other words, everything he's looking at is looking like, through, you know, through a paper towel tube. Yeah. Know? But he sees everything in great detail and great color. Um, he was very much like Walt. He was uh, he was direct. He would talk uh, basically to, to the people doing the work. He wouldn't go through his executives at all. Just, to, just didn't do that. Um, the kind of guy that uh, is on top of a fast-moving competitive operation in Las Vegas. You know, he worked his way up, um, and he's a, a, a basically business guy, hard as nails. But the other side of it, he understood emotion of guests. He he just just understood that stuff. But. Um, for me, it was an extremely easy guy to talk to at any time. He's he's, he's completely no nonsense, but he's but he's friendly, um, even to the point of well, I'll show you the friendliness. This was very interesting. His daughter had been uh, kidnapped, so he nobody would see him for a couple of months at a time. This was back in uh, oh boy, that would have been uh, ninety. 92, something like that, 91, 92. Um, and then all of a sudden he shows up in Riverside, California to look at a new attraction that was going to be much like the, the trip to Mars where you're riding in the uh, this rotation thing. A guy had built one in Riverside and he wanted to see if it was any good. He wanted to buy a couple of those. So 
I, I agreed to meet him at this factory, and we all take a ride in it. He comes down in his uh, in his uh, Challenger uh, private jet, and then rents a local limousine with all his guys from the, from the plane. And um, we look at the thing. We have a nice meeting. The limousine's hidden in the building, so nobody can see the car. And then uh, as we get ready to leave, I hear him yelling. He says, where's Gur? Where's Gur? And uh, they said, well, he's, he's just going out the door. And he jumps out of the limo, and he says, I'm going with Gur. <clears throat> you guys go to the airport by yourselves. Everybody turned white. <laughs> That's the first time he's been out in public like this. <laughs> So I have to uh, I have to always put my arm out so he can hold my arm and I have to uh, when I'm walking him because I got to make sure he's not tripping on anything. And I had my daughter's old Honda and the guy's a pretty tall guy and he's wearing tennis shorts. I sort of get him on my daughter's old car and and he says I got some questions for you. Keep the limo in sight. They know where they're going. <laughs> they're already going at high speed. <laughs> I'm, I'm chasing the limo to the airport and Steve's trying to ask this private question that he didn't want anybody else to know. So we pull up in front of the plane. Everybody goes up in the plane. The captain's standing there and there's no Steve. <laughs> didn't occur to the guy, the pilot, to look at the old Honda. We were sitting in the Honda. <laughs> so finally he gets out of the car. He says, uh, he says hey, Gert. Uh, come up. I, I got a trick airplane. I want to show you my airplane. Um, so he walks me in there right past the captain. The captain's like, who's this? <laughs> <laughs> but Steve explained inside the airplane. He says, uh, he says, this is my working airplane. I have a titanium, uh, no, a carbon fiber tube that floats on isolators completely separate from the fuselage. And that's why the, uh, the, the bed is, has a bed in the airplane. I have spent a lot of time, and I, I have to be as quiet, no vibrations possible, so I've spent a million and a quarter to put this uh, carbon fiber tube in it. But he just wanted me to see the thing, and then uh, walk me back out the door, and then the captain pulls up the air stair doors, and away they go. Stop and think what Steve Wynn just did. It's just like Walt. That guy's the mogul of Las Vegas, but when he deals privately with somebody, He'll deal privately with somebody. Mm. He did that to everybody. Yeah. An amazing thing to be uh, a high visibility mogul, but he's a one-on-one -on -one guy. Yeah. He'd, he'd phone me up here in my office. Sometimes the phone would ring. Uh, and, you know, I, and I says, hello. He says, uh, hey, girl, this is Steve. And I almost one time said, Steve who? <laughs> <laughs> I know a bunch of Steves. Yeah. He wouldn't even ask his secretary to make a phone call. He'd pick up the phone call and call you. Just yeah. like that. How did the uh, Treasure Island come about? Was that what, what, what you just talked about? Was was Treasure Island after that or during that? No, uh, in Las Vegas in that period of time, everybody was doing one-upmanship. I mean, yep. it was a competitive, competitive period in the 80s. Steve had done the Mirage. Normally, you build uh, a portico share with all the neon lights you can afford. No, Steve builds a volcano. <laughs> Who in the world wants a volcano? Well, Steve wants a volcano in front of his hotel. So his second hotel, the Treasure Island, he says, nope, I'm, um, I'm not going to do another volcano. Walt never did another pig movie. You know, you can't top pigs with pigs. Um, 
because he admired Walt Disney. No end. He never stopped yeah. talking about Walt. Um, but he said, uh, I've got a show. I'm going to have a, a Buccaneer show. He's going to call it Buccaneer Bay. He even did the soundtrack, voicing the characters on the thing. We had a big model of the thing. I heard about this because I was doing other work. Um, and I wonder who in the world's going to get that awful job in Las Vegas. They're going <laughs> to sink ships and the boulevard and get in the big fight and all that. Guess what? At that time, I'm a consultant to uh, Walt Disney Imagineering. Um, and I get a phone call from uh, Bruce Gordon, who had gotten a phone call from uh, Tony Baxter, who had gotten a phone call from Kenny Wynn, who had gotten an order from Steve Wynn. Get somebody up here in the morning to sink the ship. That's how it came about. Wow. So I meet two guys who left Disney and formed their own company, Technifex, Rocky and Monty. So the three of us meet at the appointed address with a press press review of this beautiful hotel, great big model. Steve Wynn walks everybody through the new hotel. <clears throat> Who's going to do what? And he looks at Tony Marnell, who runs Marnell Corral Company, and he says, Tony, is it not a fact you're going to build my hotel for $440 million? Yes. <laughs> the poor man is, the press heard him say that's the price. <laughs> and then Steve goes, he looks around at, you know, 30 people in our, okay, who's going to sink the ship? <laughs> <laughs> and Monty and Rocky and I are in the back row, we put our hands up. And all of a sudden, he looks and he says, hey, I know you. You're Bob. Wow. And he says, we got to talk. So all of a sudden, he discharged everybody. We went out to the model shop, told the model shop, take a long lunch, fellas. And in two hours, <clears throat> two hours, Steve and his architect and his little brother, Monty and Rock and I came up with a scheme to sink a ship. And at the end of the two hours, Steve looks at us and says, okay, guys, you got the job. Give me a preliminary price on Friday. Goodbye. <laughs> no handshake, no boilerplate, nothing signed. That's Las Vegas. Yeah. That's the way it works. Doing it on a handshake. That's, that's well, I have to say that's probably one of the most spectacular shows <laughs> at the time. I was I, I I would go to Vegas a couple times a year, and I have to tell you, I always made it a point to go and stand there and watch that show at yeah. least once while I was there. Yeah. Uh, I I thought it was just a wonderful, wonderful attraction. Well, it was Steve's idea. Everybody was convinced in that town that he was 100% nuts now. Anybody who drove volcanoes already nuts. He's going to sink a ship. But the brilliance was, the brilliant thing was, he had an office um, in front of the Treasure Island where the walkway from the sidewalk went into the building. Yeah. And then he had the sidewalk uh, you know, raised in that area. So when the show would start, everybody pile out in front of that front of the place, and when the show was over, the sidewalk's so jammed, you can't you can't leave. The only way to get off the sidewalk is walk into the building. <laughs> and Steve would take his cronies up there in the office and stand there at the end of every show. And it was very obvious. He didn't have to say anything. Look at that. Hundreds of people have to escape by coming in my casino. 
<laughs> it, it really was brilliant, I have to say. Worked for me. Um, <laughs> you know, we, never, we never had any technical trouble. It was just a lot, a lot of work. Uh, the last thing I'll say about it was we did all the preliminary drawings, all phase three, the winning bidder. We went up for the bidders conference and the president of the bidding, winning company pulled me aside at the end of the meeting. I'm done with the job. And he says, Gur, you know the most, would you do all the production drafting? And I thought, oh, God, I worked my way up through drafting to being the president of my own company. And you want me to go all the way back to a draftsman. Yes, Bob, we'll pay you. And? I took the job. <laughs> of course. <laughs> At this very desk, in this very room, I I personally drew 100% of every production drawing for both ships. Wow. And FedEx drawings every day to Las Vegas and uh, a shop in Utah. And then one day I'm in the shop in Las Vegas. And I go up every two weeks. I hear some welders talking. And they said, yeah, we got 63 guys welding as fast as we can go. And they tell us there's some old guy with a Macintosh on a hilltop in California. We can't even keep up with him. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, here, awesome. <laughs> the outcome was I learned so much about simple ways after leaving Disney watching how other businesses had super swift ways to do things. I never lost those lessons. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think we could be talking to you for the next three, <laughs> three more hours, but I have to say we do have some questions from our listeners and Al John, if you would, uh, can, Bob, we're going to ask you a couple more questions sure. if you don't mind. Absolutely. Stand by. <laughs> Skull Rock Podcast answers your email. All right, Bob. Here's the question. We have several. Scott asks, how do they keep their imagination fresh after so many years? Do they ever run out of any ideas? Bob? I can't really you... speak for um, the current generation. I can speak for uh, the 27 years that I was there. But obviously... A great amount of effort has uh, been employed to keep everyone always learning about the latest new uh, ways of technology can help tell stories. Um, it gets very, very hard now. Um, you got to remember, Walt was doing stuff with theme parks before it was called a theme park. When the learning curve was really shallow and was going up the hill really, really quick, quick. The new young people coming in today, the, that learning curve of success is so steep. I almost feel sorry for them, <clears throat> but it's a thing they have to do. So story content used to be sort of more open. Nowadays, story content is completely tangled up in uh, budgeting, capitalization strategies, uh, uh, follow-on product um strategies for uh, uh, consumer products. You got to remember Disneyland is a small piece of consumer products today. It's not, a, not like a standalone thing that it used to be. It's very, very hard work, but it does attract the best minds that you can find anywhere on the planet. 
some of those people really, really want to go be an Imagineer. There's a big difference between being an Imagineer and doing Imagineering work. That's a, a serious uh, difference. Uh, how they stay inspired, I'm not quite sure. Um, I don't know a lot of the uh, the newer, younger ones, but I know it's it's very competitive just because of the steepness of the curve of um, can you top this? Remember, you know, we topped things through Disneyland with the first number of attractions. One little thing after another, bigger, bigger, bigger. We got up to Indiana Jones, which was like, whoa, we're not going to do a $100 million job like that ever again. Bigger, bigger, bigger. You know, now we're up to the, the Marvel uh, uh, decade of uh, attractions. We're getting up now to uh, uh, a Galaxy's Edge type of things. We're getting into... Uh, uh, attraction design that is complex beyond complexity. Um, so it's, it's very tough and it's going to continue to be tough because you got to remember all the other companies around the world and the theme park design are, are doing just as good stuff. You look at universal with a, with a very tiny crew of people are doing stuff like Harry Potter's stuff like that. There's, extremely story-based. And uh, spectacular. Public, yeah, yeah, it's very spectacular. spectacular. Yeah, what the public in uh, the United States doesn't understand, all the giant theme parks being built in China, China has the money for some of the biggest, most complicated show attractions I have ever seen in my life. I'm on the awards committee for Themed Entertainment mm -hmm. Association. Uh, we, we look at all this every year. And, uh, and vote for, uh, you know, who are, who are the big winners. And a lot of them are coming out of China these days. So this is a competitive world <clears throat> for imaginary story thinking. Understood. Uh, wow. Other than your Gertinis, which I have been very happy uh, to uh, actually share one uh, with you at a, a D23 event uh, several years ago. So thank you for being so generous to your fans. Um, what inspires you today? I mean, we, I understand you, you still uh, read a lot of uh, new automotive books and, and, and the journals and things that come out. Um, but what else inspires you, Bob? Well, in a way, it's very simple. <clears throat> the world is so fascinating. All the good stuff, all the bad stuff, all the history stuff. Over time, I have been extremely interested in uh, the history of civilizations how did some of them form? What happened to some of them? One of my favorite maps I have here is an eight-foot-tall map, uh, about a foot and a half wide, called the Rand McNally Hist Map of History. And it shows 4,000 years of, of uh, civilizations coming and going. I'm fascinated by all the ideas, of, particularly the technological ideas uh, in every arena from, you know, Chinese ceramics 8,000 years ago, all the way up to the technology we've got going today with a little perseverance up on Mars driving itself around up there. This, this is a long story. It's ongoing. I am, I, I'm so curious about its path it took. And today I can enjoy all the details of it. In fact, as some people know, I was invited a year ago to JPL, and I got to meet the Perseverance crew. I got to meet um, Curiosity, the ground version uh, Curiosity. Uh, I follow the Mars rovers. 
project all the time because I know a bunch of guys over there. Some of them are mountain bikers. Um, stuff like that to me is fascinating day by day. Uh, the things that aren't so good in, in our country, let's say, I'm fascinated by those too because I like to watch the 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 psych- psychological changes of civilizations as they morph from one one period to another. We're in a very interesting period now that uh, is is quite unusual historically. So I get up every morning and it's like, ooh, I have all I have the LA Times to look at, CNN, BBC, uh, British uh, Daily Mail. I've got several automotive and aviation things to get through. Then I've got to get to the fan mail. The fan mail takes forever to do that. So my day, I can't start doing the stuff I want to do till at least 1030. And I wake up at 545. Yeah. My day is filled at night. Before <laughs> I go to bed, I pick out which airplane. My favorite airplane is the Boeing 737. I have an Epic 1000. I have three helicopters that I finally am good at. Uh, so I, I fly aircraft rather than sit on a couch doing a crossword puzzle. That's awesome. Keep, keep your mind busy. Keep your mind busy. I love it. That's, that, that's the secret. I love it. Spencer's asking you, Bob, uh, did you see Disney World while it was under construction? What were your impressions of the site or completed park the first time you saw it? <clears throat> well, the first time I saw where Walt Disney World was going to go uh, was early in... Very early in 66, uh, the company plane, we had a few executives aboard, and um, we flew around the property. And the pilot said, uh, what we're going to do, we're going to go down to 1,000 feet and put the flaps out, and we're going to fly as slow as we can, and we're going to drive around the property line, and uh, we will point out some of the features. I was so impressed. It took 20 minutes by airplane to go around the property line. And I remember looking down and seeing one cabin and a whole bunch of sinkholes and a lot of jungle. And I remember I took a bunch of pictures too, which I still have. And I remember saying to myself, oh boy, these poor people in Florida have no idea what we're going to do to them. (laughs) Uh, And then of course I was at the um, property a number of times in the, uh, in uh, 71, because I was in charge of the uh, final manufacturer of the submarines and had to get them delivered. And then I had to do a bunch of other projects at the same time. So I watched the park grow and today it's a massive park. And guess what? Little old Epcot, the crazy idea now is being redone yet again and being going to turn into a terrific entertainment place. I can't wait. Can't wait for that. A couple more. Uh, Ty Morris, a listener, is asking As an engineer myself, I'm curious as to what your approach is to design. Is it more creative or more technical? Oh, it's both. Uh, you got to remember it's a handshake. You can have, you can have a story. A story writer writes a story. I mean, it's typewriter paper. Pretty soon an artist is going to draw a couple of pictures, make it look pretty, eye candy. Pretty soon somebody's going to say, where are we going to put it? How much is it going to cost? All those kind of things. All of this is together. 
it's not one thing dominates the other. The whole thing and the role that I had at Disney was, yes, there's a storyboard. Yes, there's artist pictures. Yes, there's a location and there's a thing. And Walt says, Bobby, get started. I'm the guy that jumps out of the watercolors and the typewriter and starts taking raw materials from planet Earth, configuring them into machinery that we put humans in that makes the story live. That is a terrifying jump, but it's all part of the entire picture. So that's a long-winded answer about design and engineering. Oh, that's a great answer. Todd Strobel asks, would you like to, uh, he would like to hear what you think the Walt Disney Company is uh, doing today and uh, where the company is going in the future. So what do you think about uh, uh, the Walt Disney Company today? <clears throat> I would like to defer the question. Uh, my, uh, my interests are the first 60 years of Disneyland which I know uh, the most about, and that's the uh, part that I can speak to. But uh, all companies today are very large, competitive companies in, a, in interesting times, and I'll just let it go at that. Understood. Understood. Um, very dip- very diplomatic. Very, very, very good. Very good. No, and, and, just, and just for me, you know, um, I work for the Gibson Guitar Company, and um, you know, and I design guitars, so I know uh, I know what you're dealing with with SolidWorks. Even though I'm not uh, an engineer myself, I know that uh, it requires so much. But um, we partnered with Ray Dietrich, um, automotive designer. You know, very well known for the Packard. You know this already, Bob. Uh, designing yeah. a, a few guitars, and I was wondering if there was anything in your life that you have yet to engineer and create. Uh, what would that be? Oh, I get that question time to time. It would be a rose parade float, highly animated. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and the, re- the reason I say that, I love going to the parade. And uh, particularly, I go over the, you know, the day after over at Victory Park and study, uh, study them up close. Uh, I know a lady that works at um, one of the biggest uh, float builders. And uh, over the years, I have been invited uh, into their factory at appropriate times to see, uh, see the floats as they're just starting to go together, see the models, see the artwork, and then uh, come back as they're starting to close it up a little bit before they put the flowers on it. So I'm completely familiar with uh, how they're designed, where they're designed, and in fact, one day, great number of years ago, there was a float that had two giraffes and these two giraffes were curling their necks. You might remember that. It was a mm-hmm. clever thing. And it was done by volunteer help by a little, the little town of Sierra Madre. And they, they built it in a little shop, not very far from my house. And I phoned them up and I says, can you guys show me that thing? It was fascinating. Sure. Come on down. So I climbed into the thing, you know, it was being dismantled to see how they build it. It was the cleverest, simplest thing I ever saw that was so charming. And it was like, gee, why don't you call me someday? <laughs> it never did. <laughs> well, we, we happened to work with um, the, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Um, 
you know, and working with Jimmy Fallon. So maybe one of these days, if uh, if they ever ask, I'll say, you know, I know a guy. You know, maybe we can give you a call and we can have you design really cool floats for Gibson and Jimmy Fallon. So that'd be really cool. But thank you so much, Bob. You are an inspiration. And I think uh, you've been so generous with us on the show today, as well as the fans. Everywhere you go, you bring a smile to your face and you are an amazing storyteller. Uh, And I can say this just from the events that I've attended where you are a speaker. Uh, It's always a pleasure to hear you speak and tell stories about Disney and uh, on behalf of the fans. Uh, we absolutely love you. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And, and Bob, do you have any parting words, uh, any, any pearls of wisdom for our listeners? Yes. The word curiosity. Walt had curiosity. That was probably his main feature. And when I say curiosity, what it means is, Don't ever wait for somebody to ask you to do something. Uh, Don't ever wait till you're formally doing something. Make sure from the time you're about five years old, you want to know everything about everything. And I'm serious. Your, Your waking day can be filled with so much fascination if you will simply go do it. Today, I will look at people walking across the street on a crosswalk, unconcerned that the car is going to run over them because they are so concentrated with the texting on their infernal hand-carried device. Every hour you spend with your nose buried in a hand-carried device, sharing no new information, you're sharing trivia back and forth with your peer group, you are denying to yourself the fascinating world around you. Think about it. Amen. It's so important important to me. Today, I'll give you an example. On Friday night, I can sit in my rocking chair and think, boy, do you know how much I know Friday that I did not know Monday? This means I am soaking up stuff at the same rate I've always soaked it up And it's crazy because 15 minutes of oxygen deprivation, my entire hard drive library is gone. But I do it. It's curiosity. Mm. The people who have it know what I'm talking about. The people that don't have it should think about it and become as curious as they can be. You will be so much better. You'll be a moving part of the entire world if you do that. Wonderful parting words. Thank you so much. Bob Gurr, Disney legend, uh, just author, designer. I mean, what a career. I mean, and, and it's not over. And I just want to I just want to emphasize that because even though you're 89 years old, you are out there mountain biking, you are curious, you are doing stuff on a daily basis and you're doing new things and you're stretching the boundaries and I think that is just so amazing and it is an inspiration to all of us. So thank you very much for being on Skull Rock podcast. My pleasure. I have to say too check out Bob's Facebook page because you must. And he's working with fandom productions to sell some awesome merch when a limited edition merch, which I always seem to miss out on because the Bob Gurr 90 years since 1931 mug is one of my favorite things 
that you guys do, especially the signed posters. So please check out the Facebook page. Check out uh, the website, fandomproductions.com, because you can sign up for the email and know when Bob's doing the cool signings and get some Bob Gurr swag. Actually, you can do it on Instagram. That's right. Instagram as well. We'll put the links in the show notes, Bob, so everyone can follow what you're doing. I have no idea why 24,000 people are followers on Instagram <laughs> at my age. It's crazy. <laughs> they love you, Bob. You're, you're, you're the goat. You're the goat, the greatest of all time, a, a national treasure, and uh, one should be protected at all costs, and thank you so much. All right. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob. Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one. For a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Trains and all types of modes of transportation, man. Bob Gurr is a man on the move at 90 years. I can't believe it. What a great interview. You know, it, it's really something else. I mean, what 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 a great interview. And and I, like I said, Al John, we, we, could, we could talk to that guy for three hours or so, when, you know? When I was at Epcot and he did um, a, a D23 event, he sat down right there uh, up top of uh, the, uh, the American Pavilion and we just sat, he held court. We were all great. We were all drinking, having a great time. And he is such a fascinating character. Every time uh, we do these things where he does uh, these things. And we talked, literally went from table to table. And we just had great conversations. So giving. Uh, a true embodiment of a, a, a great Disney legend. Because he is what he he saw in Walt. A very personable, down-to-earth, and relatable person that anyone can strike up a conversation with. And, um, you know, he, he is, he is, he is a, um, a national treasure. Absolutely. Yeah. national treasure. Yeah, without question. I, I, you know, I absolutely agree with you and I, I love talking with the guy, you know, I had an opportunity uh, to go out to his house and chat with him. I did a big interview with him about Claude Coates because, you know, I've written this book about Claude Coates and uh, he was just so giving and inviting me into his home and, and hanging out and, uh, and just talking about, uh, you know, his friendship with Claude Coates and, and all the projects he worked on with Claude. So very, very insightful and uh, just a wonderful indiv individual, but also very inspirational yes. because, you know, at 89, he's, he's on top of it all. Yeah. You know, he's, he's constantly reading. He's constantly, you know, he talked about curiosity. He's always curious about things and he's always moving forward and doing new things. And, you know, we should all be so lucky. Absolutely. I meant to say the new acronym is giant global icon and national treasure. That's the icon that is Bob Gurr, the giant in this industry, giant that lives in our hearts and is so inspirational. Absolutely. Right. And, uh, yeah, if more people would be like Bob, we'd be in a great place as a world. And I think um, instead of uh, just dreaming it, you can dream it and do it, right? There you go. Absolutely. Words to live by. I, I love it. And once again, thank you for checking out our show. Don't forget, you can share this show to your friends and family if they're down with it. Uh, we absolutely would love to hear and uh, hear from you by letting us know on, on social media. Uh, you can also email us once again, whether it's Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com, Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com, or Facebook, LinkedIn, what have you. We'd love to hear from you. 
So uh, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about Skull Rock Podcast. Uh, Dave, we've got a bunch of really cool guests coming up. Did you want to do a tease for a guest or two? Yeah, well, you know something? I cannot wait. Uh, next week, we've got animator Dave Proxma. Uh, now, you have to have seen his work because he was the lead animator on Flounder in The Little Mermaid, Mrs. Potts and Chip in Beauty and the Beast. I mean, he's really just an incredible artist and teacher, by the way. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of his online teaching that he's going to uh, that he's doing now. Wow! Yeah. Uh, but really, an incredible career, an incredible artist. I'm looking forward to having him on. Uh, we've got other folks coming up. We've got uh, you know other artists, producers. Uh, we've got Imagineers lined up. Uh, we're we've really. Uh, we're booking people all the way out into April now. Holy mackerel. I, I have to say, this whole show is just uh, going off the charts. It's great. And we appreciate the support from everyone, including our key supporters as well. We'll give them a shout out here in the next episode. But thank you, guys and gals, so much for, for loving the show. And uh, thank you, Dave, once again, for, for being the ringleader here. I'm just, uh, I'm, <laughs> I, you're, you're, uh, you're, you know, you're you're the lead singer, and I'm your backup band. It's like you know, we've got the Rolling Stones here. You got Mick Jagger, and I'm Keith Richards. So there you go. No, man. no, baloney, baloney. <laughs> we're up there. We're we're the two front men for this uh, the, this enterprise here. And I and I have to say, uh, keep the questions coming, folks. It's great hearing from people. You know, if you have a specific question about some of the films that Dave Pruxma worked on, send us those questions during the week, uh, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna ask them. I mean, that's what we're here to do. We, we want to, we want, we want to get that information out to you. So uh, we're looking forward to it. Al John, have a great week. You too. Take care and have a great week. We'll see you next time in another episode of Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Kristen Hetzel, co-host of Dining at Disney Podcast. Every week, I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. 
And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.